I said, when did you get into Formula One? And she just stopped and looked at me and went, about 10 years ago. She had a heart transplant 10 years ago, and it was from somebody who died in a car accident who used to race cars. There's some ideas out there that uh, there's some sort of memory cells maybe uh, attached to these organs shape uh, how you perceive the world and what you like and what you don't like. Brain and body are intimately connected with each other. Two times 10 minutes, breath work, we tell that patients that are on our waiting list, here's an intervention, do that. And what I'm hoping that we see is that they have higher vagal activity when they come to our clinic, so they will benefit more from the therapy they are getting there. You're saying that there's critical points, and if you can teach this work for police and other first responders, that's going to make a big difference to that individual's ability to keep regulating stress as they get older and will lead to less stress claims, mental health challenges and a overall greater quality of life. Yes, head of the police here in Ulm um, who decided, well, you know, I had some really bad experiences over the time uh, and I think it's not healthy how we handle that and let's do some things different. And I mean, he's responsible for two and a half thousand police officers and you need persons like that to say, well, I envision that pays attention to the mental health of my police officers. Optimize performance through adapting your physical, psychological and emotional state. Hi, it's Andrew and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. This science of is deep. Dr. Mark Yalchok and Dr. Tom Buckley are two of the world's leading experts in heart rate and heart rate variability. And we go deep on those two areas. We also look at breath work and we look at an amazing study Dr. Yalchok and his colleagues have done with the German police force. And at the start of this podcast, we wanted to let you know about an exciting new addition we have to our Science of podcast. It is called PQ and You. At the end of the Science of episodes moving forward, we have a guest, somebody who has listened to the Performance Intelligence podcast and or somebody I have worked with and they have made major changes to their life. It could be physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual, social, all of the hours. So we're starting that this episode and look out for future Science of episodes where we have a guest talking about how performance intelligence, PQ, that's why we're calling it PQ and you, has impacted their life. And if you're listening to this and you think this podcast or the work we've done together has made a real difference, reach out and we'd love to have you as a future guest on PQ and you. Now let's listen to this episode with Dr. Mark Yalchok and Dr. Tom Buckley. Dr. Mark Yauchok is a social scientist by training and runs the Laboratory for Clinic Experimental Stress Research within the Department of Psychosomatic Medicine and Psychotherapy at the University Medical Center in Ulm, Germany. He previously worked in the Mannheim Institute of Public Health. Mark is an international expert in areas of heart rate variability measurement and significance within clinical and preventative frameworks. Dr. Tom Buckley is the Director of Research at Strive Stronger. He's an Associate Professor in the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney and Adjunct Professor at both Griffith University and Southern Cross University. He is a leading expert on the effect of stress on cardiovascular health. Dr. Tom implements a functional medicine approach and coaches high performers in sport, business and all walks of life to optimise physical and psychological state to enhance performance. And for ease of our listeners, we are going to refer to you as Dr. Mark, Dr. Tom. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. 
Welcome, Mark. Thanks, yeah, thanks for the invitation. Happy to be here. Now, for those watching on YouTube, I'm sitting here in a box with the wizard. Hello, wizard. Looking forward to this one. I'm going to go pretty deep on heart and heart rate variability. And Dr. Tom, you're sitting there in front of Sydney University. Dr. Mark, I believe you're in front of the University of Ulm. We need to get some. We need to get some merch and stuff behind me. Like, look at these firepowers. And I said to you both with respect at the start, because you are both leading global experts. I'll say that again, leading global experts in heart rate, heart rate variability. If it gets a little bit too heavy on science, and I'm going to be the barometer, we're going to play a noise. That noise, Homer Simpson. Homer yelling out nerds. <laughs> this is what it's going to sound like. <laughs> Nerd! <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Tom, I'm curious, where did this love affair start? This intellectual love affair you both have on the heart and heart rate variability. Take us back to that. Really paint a clear picture for me. Talk to me about that first moment when your eyes met. No. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad you put the word intellectual in there, Andrew, because, you know, my family do listen to this and uh, we don't want our listeners getting the wrong impression or certainly my family not. I think Mark and I have a quite a joint interest in the association between the heart and, and the heart rate variability and people's emotions, their well-being, their performance. So I think that we've got a common interest. But I think our paths crossed, Mark, when I was doing some work looking at, at broken heart syndrome and looking at what happens to people when they lose a loved one and looking at the effect of that on people's hearts. And Mark, one of your colleagues, was doing similar was doing similar work and another colleague in the US. So it became this sort of triangle of researchers with interest in the area, which resulted in me visiting um, Germany. And that's where I first laid eyes intellectually on Mark, as you said, Andrew. But Mark fascinates me because he has a very different, he's come to this topic of a very different journey to me, but he's absolutely one of the world's leading experts when it comes to heart rate variability. So Mark's my go-to to help me explain the big words that I can't explain. Well, every relationship is balanced, Mark, so I'd like to hear your view. Where did this intellectual love affair first blossom in your eyes? Well, in the beginning, it was a colleague uh, from the US uh, pointing out that Tom is also doing something on bereavement and grief work. And so, um, yeah, we Googled him up and tried to get in contact and meet up because uh, one of my students was doing work on uh, that the body is also grieving. So you can see physiological signs of grief and uh, this can have tremendous health impact, as Tom was describing. And uh, yeah, so we wanted to know the the impact of a grief on the physiology without going too much into detail. Yeah, we often look at the pain points which lead to performance. Tom, we often talk about that, the intersection when we met, I was more at the high performance end. You were down the bottom of the river fishing people out when you were working in, in nursing and cardiac care. And we've got this beautiful blend in between. Now to keep us on track roughly, background done, check, wizard, it aligns. We can go through to the next part. Oh, two, I want to talk about heart rate. Three, breath work. Four, HRV, heart rate variability. And five, Mark, we're going to keep people literally sitting on the edge of their seats 
bike seat aeroplane, wherever people are doing this. We want to talk about the study that you've done with the German police force putting all of this utility, all this science into practice. But if we go through a bit of the science first, I think that will really help people understand the amazing work you're doing. Dr. Tom, I I know there's three things you love. You love you too. Every time we talk about something, you go, oh, there's a song for that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's written by a guy named Bono or The Edge. Two, I know you love bikes, anything with two wheels. And three, you love heart rate. I found this out 17 or 18 years ago. We'd been working together for a couple of years. We were at a conference. It was a real estate company. And you told a story that every time I still hear this, I think about this. I've even got goosebumps when I've read your words on this, where you're talking to a lady, you're in Canberra, and the Grand Prix was on. I'll get you to pick up the rest of the story. Yeah, we we were watching the Grand Prix, and I think it was the Singapore Grand Prix, and I was sitting down with one of my best friend's uh, mother, we were suddenly embroiled in a conversation around V8s versus V10s. It was at the time of a transition, traction control versus not traction control. And I just stopped and I just looked at her and I said, have you always been into Formula One? And she just looked over at me, kind of smirked and went, no. And I, I said, when did you get into Formula One? And she just stopped and looked at me and went, um, about 10 years ago, and it just clicked with me that she'd had a heart transplant 10 years ago. So I just pondered and pondered. And I turned around and said, so you definitely were never into this before, before you never into Formula One before your heart transplant. And she said, no. And I said, did you ever find out who you got the heart from? And then the penny dropped. She just looked at me and she said, I did. And it was from somebody who died in a car accident who used to race cars. I, I got it again. Like seriously, I just I listen to that and it's visceral for me. Mark, have you heard that story before? Doctor Tom, tell that story. Yeah, yeah, he told the story uh, before, and there's some uh, ideas out there that uh, there's some sort of memory cells maybe uh, attached to these organs and um, you know shape uh, how you perceive the world and what you like and what you don't like. Because the, I mean, brain and body are intimately connected with each other, and our responses to the outer world comes very much from the inside, and not only from the inside of the brain, but also from the inside of the other, say, end organs. Mm -hmm. And there's a mutual interaction always ongoing. So if you, I can imagine, if you take out one part of the body and transplant it with another part, that you may transfer some of these uh, intrinsic memories, more to say. Have you seen other examples of that in, in the work you do for either of you? Other people who've had heart transplants and some of the behaviours they took? Tom, you're nodding. Give me a few other examples. Or a few yeah, other well, well, with this lady, she also took on some of the food choices. And so she became a bit of a fish and chips um, lover that she didn't used to be. I did investigate this. And Mark, a, a lot of our colleagues in, in medicine and, and psychology can often be a bit sceptical about the idea of transplanting memories through transplanting organs. And while there's not there's no massive big research study I can point to, there are a number of series of case studies where it's frequently reported that people after transplants of organs can actually demonstrate some of the attributes of the of the donor. The one area where a small proportion of patients seem to continue with those traits is in the, when they have the heart transplanted. So if you had a liver transplant or some other part of the organ, you don't see this phenomena. So the 
there, there is some skepticism about it. But I think if you sit back and think about it for a minute, and, and you, you know, you're always asking me about my fascination with heart rate, the heart cells and a, a group of very specialized pacemaker cells in the heart are the only cells that can create their own impulse without any input from the nervous system or any input. From, yeah, the, the, the brain can, can speed them up and slow them down, but they create their own impulse. And if you want to physiologically keep stripping back physiology to the, what I call the meaning of life, it actually comes down to a little part of the cell wall in those cells that if a particular action doesn't happen, you won't be alive in the next second. Now, where does the energy impulse or what we scientifically call an action potential come from? No scientist can explain that. So we you know, that's one of my fascinations, and it's called automaticity. It's the ability of the heart cells to generate their own impulse. And while there are muscles and neurons there, if you, you have the same sort of structure in other muscular cells, and they're not able to create their own impulse without a nervous system input, but these particular cells can. So I'm always in debate with the, 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 the neurology experts around where, where is life? You know, for me, it's actually back in the heart cells. Now, if you think about growing up, or, you know, you think about our own lives, we, we tend to go to the heart with our emotions. You know, you talk about love, you draw a heart. You know, he talk about, broke my heart, she broke my heart. You know, yeah, I could feel yeah. the heaviness in my heart. Mm, mm. And the same thing when, when, you know, she broke my heart or he broke my heart. You know, we, we, we tend to associate the heart with, with our emotions. So that, that, that sort of idea of the heart being central to memory and emotions. And there were, when I was studying this in the, Mark spoke earlier about, you know, the, the work I studied in grief and grief response, some of the animal studies, which would never, ever be done in today's society. And thank God, I think I've shared it with you referring before. referring to the, the monkey studies? Some of the studies that? where they've looked at the effect of grief on parents of baby monkeys and some of the studies there would suggest that the heart rate isn't just a response to the grief, it's actually mediating the grief. And that's led to a lot of the work that I've done in recent years, testing manipulation of heart rate during grief. So using heart lowering drugs in the early phase of grief. And what we found there is that you can reduce the cardiovascular risk, but you also seem to reduce the uh, the psychological morbidity risk as well. So that 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 kind of work would lead me to think that actually the heart's way more important to our emotions and way more important to our to our behaviors than perhaps we give it credit. Hey, it's me. Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know you probably hear this on so many other podcasts and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now let's get back to this week's episode. I think we need to be really conscious of people we're using these analogies to as well just to go off track a little bit because I said to my daughter three-year-old Sophia a month ago I said oh darling uh, she gave me a big hug and a kiss I said oh you melt my heart and she ran in and said to Tony she said mommy melted daddy's heart is he going to be okay so I think you need context for this second point that comes up when you're talking about heart rate and emotions Mark I'll throw to you on this because we hear a lot about heart rate and anxiety 
What's the relationship between heart rate and anxiety from all the research or the practice that you do? I wanted to add, Tom, that there's also a theory, uh, evidence out there from Richard Lane and his group in Arizona talking about how emotions um, establish in the body. And it's uh, he's basically saying that they emerge in the organs and in the uh, lower body, and the brain is just interpreting the signals to that emotion. So we need to teach people, as you just uh, said, the lovely example with uh, Sophia, that uh, melting a heart or being heartwarming to someone means something. And in our clinic, we see many patients who have difficulties to interpret emotions at different levels. So some of them aren't aware, so they don't get any input signal. But this is like the the least part of the patients. Most of the patients have difficulties in assigning the right attributes to these emotions. So they feel like they, you know, there's something going on, but they don't know, Are am I angry? Am I in love? So this is really difficult. Or am I anxious uh, at that uh, moment? So is that age related? Is it based on having the right role models? Because we hear a lot of this in psychology, that that formation of the brain, 85 and 90% of the brain is formed up until five years of age. Is it similar around emotions, having a stable environment, having parents, carers, loved ones talk about emotions and feelings? Does this fast track that ability to have that connection? I believe definitely, yes. I'm not an emotional expert, but um, yeah, I, I think that there are like uh, windows of opportunities over the lifespan and especially in uh, growing up uh, kids and uh, young adolescents, there are certain time periods where they're especially vulnerable to not heartwarming parents responding to them or um, having maybe missing a parent or something. And you have to teach them. And what we can see is that there's some sort of um, heritability across generations. So if your parents have say, psychosomatic difficulties in expressing their emotions or sensing their emotions, their kids are very likely to develop that uh, similar thing too. So they, they are act as role models and have this intergenerational transfer of emotion interpretation. I often think of how many hours you need to do to learn to drive a car. In Australia, it's hundreds of hours. Is it the same in Germany or you're a bit free? Just throw the keys at someone, get out in the autobahn, son, (laughs) go for a drive. Is it a similar process? You have to go through a whole learning process with an instructor, then you have your P's, and then finally, a couple of years later, you're let to drive, right? So as I think about how much time people put in to learn to drive a car, and then uh, there's the obvious joke, sometimes it doesn't take that long to, to have a child, right? I'll just leave that open joke hanging there. But it's such a responsibility, isn't it, to bring a, a lovely child into this world, into this environment. And as you say that, I just think, you know, I've got four children. What a responsibility it is as a parent, isn't it, to, to understand, to have some performance intelligence around your heart so you can role model. But a lot of people, Mark, if they haven't had that, they're probably going to pass it on to their kids as well. So it could be challenging. Does this get passed down through generations, this sort of inability or this ability to regulate emotion? I often wonder about that, Mark. I often wonder about how much of it is inherited through through our genetics or how much of it is environmental response. Uh, I, I, I do like that concept of these vulnerable periods. And we see this in health as well, where we walk through our life and we walk through these vulnerable periods from a health, both emotional and physical health perspective. And if not much happens there, perhaps we walk through it. But if something happens, we can get triggered into different states or 
perhaps even a, a exacerbation of or onset of disease. So um, I, I think from a heart perspective, the, the relationship between emotions and the heart fascinates me because when your heart rate increases, you do feel different things. So it's quite normal when your heart rate raises to, for some people to feel quite a lot of anxiety or to perhaps become start expressing a lot of emotion in a way they wouldn't before. But likewise, when you're going through an emotional state, your heart rate raises. So I think there's a bi-directional relationship there. And I think people think of it as one direction, Mark, but I think it's definitely bi-directional, isn't it? it it's definitely bi-directional, yes. And this is the reason, for example, if you bring in people to our lab and uh, want to do some stress tests with them, first thing they do is they relax and sit there and, you know, get down their heart rate, get down their emotions and um, focus, get some paperwork done, uh, just because if it's just such a difference if they come with a car and, you know, park in front of the clinic and just uh, get the elevator, or if they come with a bicycle, you know, going up the hill and then climbing up the stairs. And so their heart rate is different. I mean, they also the physiology is different, but this makes definitely uh, uh, differences in the stress responses. So we try to set them all into the same, you know, resting mode, so to say. And as you said, that the um, heart is shaping the how you feel the emotions and what kind of emotions you feel. I mean, we know this, that we deeply breathe for some reason and, you know, try to get refocus and try to uh, get a different sense of the world uh, around us to, to, you know, to to shift emotions that we have. If we have a really bad moment and feel angry about something, the moment uh, that the state of relaxation helps us to, you know, get rid of some part, at least of the angriness, for example, and get back on track and, you know, make better decisions than we would maybe do in the effective moment uh, where we are in the, in a bad mood. So, and what you're doing with the grief patients or with the grief um, participants in your study, Tom, is basically similar. So with beta blockers, we can change heart rate. So the input is different. So breathing versus medication, more or less, but um, the effect should be similar or comparable. Ooh, I want to keep that open loop on breathing versus medication just for a little bit and we'll jump down that, that hole. As I'm listening to you both, Wiz, we haven't sounded the Homer Simpson alarm yet. I think I need to because I'm sitting here on the edge of my seat <laughs> trying to throw back to everything I learned in exercise physiology and through association with Dr. Tom. So here he is, Homer. Nerd! As you were saying that just then, Mark, I think about in psychology, CBT, cognitive behaviour therapy. It's, it's a proven evidence-based mechanism to help people with their emotions. Now, I know we already have HRT, hormone replacement therapy, but is there a, a future where we have heart rate training or heart rate therapy that you actually build this in? Or am I jumping to what you guys do to actually train the heart? So you reverse engineering a better way of balancing emotions. You're starting with the body and going to the brain rather than the other way. Good question. So we haven't talked about the details Um you know, and how um, heart rate and heart rate variability emerges. But if I put it that way, I would love to, you know, assess what we do in our clinical work, give a rating how much of that is changing your heart and your heart rate and how the mechanism works to regulate the heart, so vagal activity, basically. And I would love to improve our clinical work and maximize this effect on, like, triggering vagal activity in there. I mean, there are many ways to improve vagal activity, but it seems like 
at least what we do in our clinic with, uh, for example, CBT, is not really getting most of out of it, um, does not maximize or utilize from that perspective what we can, could do with our patients. Yeah, and, and can I add to that? Uh, because I think there's often a so what when it comes to heart rate and heart rate variability. So people will often say, oh, well, that's great, Tom, but so what? But the so what's are really the things that affect us every single day of our life. You know, at 4 a.m. in the morning, your heart rate is at its lowest point. You know, it should your heart rate should be super low. And then it, in, it increases as you wake up. And one of the so what's of that is that that's the most vulnerable physiological period of the day for us. As a matter of fact, the most dangerous thing we do is get out of bed. And we see a lot of heart attacks occur at that time of the day. The symptoms may onset at that time or they may come later. So, so you know, the mechanism behind that is heart rate's at the heart of it. But the other thing we know about heart rate, and the thing that sort of, Andrew, I know it always excites you, is that you can actually predict lifespan on heart rate. So, so we have this short-term heart rate manipulation to manipulate our emotions, which Dr. Mark here is a, a leading expert in. But then there's the prediction of heart rate, prediction of disease, prediction of lifespan, health span. And so it doesn't matter where you look at the human, whether it's uh, embryo development, when we have really high heart rates, uh, as a, uh, you know, or it's at the end of life when we lose our ability to regulate heart rate and heart rate variability reduces. It's it's the constant across our life, isn't it? Mm. It's also it's a measure for capacity, and and you very smart men will give me a lot more big words on capacity. But we know if you can drop someone's resting heart rate by five or ten beats per minute, and Dr. Tom, we've done this dozens and dozens of times with our executive clients, individual and executive groups. And when you drop that resting heart rate by interval training, increase VO two max, and also teach people parasympathetic how to relax the ability they have to control emotions, regulation, but more so the energy they have. Like Tom, every time we do this with an executive and we get them doing interval training and get them to switch off and relax or downregulate, they come back a couple of months later. I had a guy literally just before we started this podcast and he came in and he hugged me. He said, Maisie, what have you done? He said, I, I just feel like I've got this superpower. And his resting heart rate is seven beats per minute less than it was when we started with him a few, a few months ago. So it, it is such a guide that we use all the time i think for our listeners or watching on youtube it's really important that you know the mechanism of heart rate it's not just something that's there use it for your performance have an awareness of it yeah and and a lot of the debate or scientific discussion around heart rate is is it mediating things which i think we've just talked about heart rate mediating our emotions or is it a response to something you know is the heart rate up or down because of something. So when you when you do high interval training, you're you know you're raising a heart rate while you're training, and a lot of people struggle with the concept that the real benefit of doing that isn't necessarily while you're doing it. Yes, you get neuromuscular adaptation, but the adaptation comes when you stop. And so you know one way to lower your heart rate is to intermittently raise it. Yeah, but when you do that, you're also increasing what the system that we call the parasympathetic system or the vagal system, the recovery system. And that's where I think, Mark, all the goodness is, isn't it? When you enhance the vagal system, you are now creating capacity, increasing your resilience, 
both emotionally, physically, you're creating physical capacity. And I think that's where the goodness is in the vagal system, probably. Yeah. And I think this is the part where uh, our traditional school medicine is wrong. We always ask the question, why is the sympathetic system so active? But we should ask, why is the parasympathetic uh, system no longer active? Because this is our default mode. As long as we don't need a stress response, it's permanently inhibit under inhibitory control by some certain networks. And in uh, our daily life, we, we really use that like, like in a car with a very high pacemaker in there. Um, we break through our day with the vagal system. And as soon as we lose that, we see our patients in the clinic with an elevated heart rate around 90 or 80, a resting heart rate. I mean, this is very high and an unhealthy state for a long time. And if we could get them to reduce their heart rate again, and this is what you just said, Andrew, reducing the resting uh, heart rate in your executives, they feel more power, they feel more relaxed. And this is because um, there's, there's a layer of this parasympathetic system being more active again, you know, energy preservance is there. You have more time for um, cognition, more capacity for cognitions, and uh, in the end to make better decisions in your um, everyday life. And we we adapt our body and physiology to every micro uh, millisecond around us. So um, it's it has maybe just small impact, but over the time it will be have a very very large impact if the system is working or not. Mar- Marcus says something. So important there that, that I, I can't help but jump in. It's really, really important to remember that, that the heart can actually beat independent of the brain, as I said earlier. So if you whenever I've witnessed a heart transplant, the heart is removed from somebody who is brain dead. It is literally sitting there in a bucket of ice beating as long as you give it some glucose and a few nutrients, it'll just continue to beat. Okay. Now, what does it beat at? In uh, It beats at about 100 beats per minute when it's independent independent of the, the nervous inputs. Now, we don't run around with heart rates of 100. So some of your patients, you talk, their heart rates of 80, 90. We, we should be down closer to 60 to 70. So what Mark's talking about there is that we actually – we actually have the brakes on all day long on average, which is the, the parasympathetic system, the brakes. That's the system that's actually slowing the heart rate down because the heart wants to beat faster. Right? And it's so important what you just said there, Mark, because if you look at, you talked about inputs, when you look at how we live today, we spend all day doing things to put the foot in the accelerator, caffeine, blue screens, being harassed, being busy, all the stimuli to our, all our senses, yeah? They're all the things that actually are taking a foot off the brake mark, aren't they? They're all the things that are allowing this heart to race back up to what it wants to at 100, when actually it's the parasympathetic system that keeps us alive long, not the sympathetic. Sympathetic is great when you need to run away from a dinosaur, but actually, it shouldn't be so dominant in today's society. We don't. We shouldn't. It shouldn't be dominating, should it? As the non-scientist expert, heart rate physiology guru, is that because the world has changed so much and our physiology just hasn't adapted to it? Well, think about think about the fact that we don't slow down anymore, do we? And when we do slow down, we usually have something stimulating the brain rather than rather than sitting, you know, if you think about human development, it's only in what, the last 100 years we've had televisions, in the last 20, 30 years we've had iPhones, all these, you know, I'm sure, 
our ancestors weren't waking up every morning and having two coffees before they even have breakfast. You know, so I think the I think our physiology is I've always thought, Mark, that our physiology is about 200 years behind in how we physiologically adapt. Um, so the physiology expression we see now is how is is you know it's always 200 years behind. We haven't adapted to this industrialized modern world that most of us yeah. live in. And I guess Edward, you know, the executives uh, who are in your lab or um, come and see you and say, well, you know, I, I have I need to bring more performance. Uh, they want to increase, you know, their performance, but what they really need to increase is in the end, you know, their uh, parasympathetic system. They need to know when it's time to relax, when it's time to, you know, shut off the emails and everything else and you know just focus on yourself get a good bunch of sleep and then you know go back to work with re-energized and not working 10 or 12 hours constantly and thinking i need to do 14 hours so i think this is something that we haven't adapted to my feeling the world is telling us always you know you have to perform more and you have to perform longer but what it should really teach us is uh you have to have to perform at a certain time And then you have to relax at a certain time. And I know many people who feel guilty or bad if they don't work, um, even in the evening, if they don't check their emails, their WhatsApp, they can't really detach from the world. So it's, I think this is, uh, yeah, going into a, a bad direction if we can't shut off. I mean, even train rides. I used to ride trains to school um, early on, and we didn't have any cell phones or anything. You were just had chats or looking outside. We do, did social bonding, of course. And now everyone is just looking into PCs and cell phones and no one is really interacting and hardly anyone is looking outside and, you know, just seeing the landscape flying by. It's, it's a relaxation mode. So we are constantly having input to our brains that we can't really rest on. So I think this is something that we didn't learn. There's a beautiful program called Look Up, which is literally get off your mobile and look up. It's gone global. Now I need to do two callbacks. And one is... We've mentioned it quite a lot, sympathetic, parasympathetic. So in a real basic terminology, how do you explain that to a patient when they come in, Mark? Give me give me the definition. We're coming to your clinic and you're talking about autonomic nervous system and the difference between stress and recovery. No, well, I, I use the analogy of the uh, car, you know, having a high gas um, intrinsic pace, for example, like the heart rate is 110 beats or 100 beats. And then if you reconnect uh, um, the uh, accelerator and the brake, um, we are at our resting heart rate. And so they realize, okay, it shouldn't be 110. It should be somewhere between 60 and 80. And there are some tables we can look up what is the, the average heart rate by age and sex. So they realize that they are a little bit higher. And so then we start to talk about things, how to you know, decrease heart rate. What, what can you do to moderate or modify that? So I, I really use just one slide, basically, and my daughters love this slide. There's a car going across the slide. So I use it always in teaching. And uh, I got it from Julian Thayer, I guess. Uh, he, he had it in one of his talks, and I asked him, can I have that? And so I think this is like the best analogy. Of course, there are other systems that feed into that, but you, you need these um, simple things and simply simplified things to story tell um, the, your patients or your people, uh, you know, what you want from them. And they need to need to get a basic understanding how this system works. And I mean, a system with three components is already very complex. 
So intrinsic gas, the accelerator and the brake, it's already a complex system. And unfortunately, the heart is not reacting linear to the environmental input. It's a nonlinear dynamic system. And your heart rate inputs depend on where your heart actually is at, at the right uh, at the moment. So if your heart is racing at 80 or 90 minutes per uh, beats per minute, the input of an additional parasympathetic unit is some means something different than if your heart is at a heart rate of 60 minutes. So uh, beats per minute. So yeah, it's there, there was, there are scientists who wanted to uh, make predictions how the heart rate will develop. And they, um, so far they all failed because it's, just a highly dynamical system with many inputs. With with reference, are we able to get a copy of that slide and put in the show notes so people listening to this yes, can have course. a look at that? All right, so we'll go to the show notes. Wiz will put that there. Now, the second component, I've got to go back. We love a bit of controversy on the Performance Intelligence Podcast. So when you have a German expert, a global expert saying, and that's what's wrong with the traditional medical system. We cannot let you get away with that. So talk to me about psychosomatic medicine, because from what I've learned from Dr. Tom, you're years ahead of many other countries in the world, what you're doing here. So can you give us a bit of an expose into why you think it's wrong and what you are doing with your treatment? The wrong track starts with the people like Walter Cannon, Hans Seile, uh, who put their animals and their their participants into a high a high threatening state? You know, they, they were like life threatening conditions to the animals they had, and they saw the sympathetic system shooting up and you know leading finally to um, to exhaustion and to death of the animal in their experiments. And they didn't realize and didn't put any focus on the parasympathetic system on the uh, you know how to get back the system into a normal working condition. That was not their interest. But medic- medicine, um, to my feeling, picked this up. And in every single textbook, there is this explanation, if you're stressed, your sympathetic system is overactive. But what it is really is that the parasympathetic system no longer kicks in and controls this stress response, because we have very basic systems that are always on unless they are uh, inhibited. And so this inhibition started with the development of brain, you know, higher brain function inhibit lower brain functions. And so the higher brain functions usually inhibit the stress response if we feel we are in a safe environment. And there's a very, very lovely theory by Jos Broschot from the Netherlands about the general uh, unsafety theory of stress, where he um, basically explains if you don't feel safe, your stress response is always on. And safety is something, you know, it's a broad, very, very large concept because there are so many things feeding into uh, the perception of safety. And this can be disturbed by uh, things that you experience while growing up, while um, you are at work and you have, a, I don't know, a bad boss, for example, or someone bullying you. So safety is really like the core concept of it. And the brain works in a, uh, there's a brain center in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex working in a way where all the informations that we have are integrated. So things that happen in our environment feeds in there, things of our bodily state fit in there. Uh, but also if you go back back and forth in time, so things that happened in the past in a similar situation to us feed in and also predictions of what will happen in the future, in the near future or in, in I don't know, in two weeks will also feed in. So we have a prediction system there. We have a memory system there and the temporal uh, system uh, connecting internal and external environment. And all of that is constantly monitored and is feeding this uh, system 
of the stress response, basically inhibitory control of the stress response. And I think this is very something very important. If you look at the news today, most of them are bad news, something that sells better and um, gives you more readerships. And um, but this is basically increasing anxiety uh, in the society and maybe also leading to more stress related uh, diseases in the end. And that relationship between heart rate and anxiety is strong, isn't it? You know, it is. It is spoken about that in psychology for years. Yeah, it's it's very strong there. Yeah, we have many anxious patients. Uh, I think this is the second largest group after depression um, in our psychosomatic clinic. And I think Germany is a little bit different from the rest of the world. So most most countries have clinic for psychiatry. And uh, we have a, a clinic for psychosomatic patients. So it's not the, the schizophrenia or, you know, patients. It's depression, anxiety, eating disorders. So things that yeah you wouldn't necessarily attribute to psychiatry. And so we have a, a hospital with uh, 20 beds where they can come in. And um, we have a day clinic where they can come in. So this concept is not very well known. I mean, the um, American Psychosomatic Society and uh, they always say, well, it's so stunning that you have an own hospital. We have psychotherapists, you know, being uh, where you can go and sign up for, for therapy, but we wouldn't have ever a hospital where you can go to and get like your psychosomatic medicine treated. And I think this is, but psychosomatic medicine is something, you know, where you look at the interconnection between the brain, what the brain does to your body and what the body does to your brain, because it's very simple. If you're hungry, Ghrelin goes up, vagus nerve senses ghrelin and fits into the brain and then you start seeking food. So your body is is uh, basically shaping your behavior with very simple mechanisms, but the same way, there's the same thing the other way around. So um, if you think you should eat and you see yummy food in front of you, your vagus nerve also, you know, is preparing your stomach to release some juice to your stomach and, you know, so you're prepared for food intake. And this is also very uh, powerful and strong. So imagination of good food is enough to um, start release the stomach uh, juice. You mentioned another comment flippantly and you moved forward. Germany is different in this area. Why? Mm -hmm. Why is Germany so evolved in this area? Because I listened to that in my combined degrees, exercise physiologist, when I was young and I was an athlete and I thought it was all about the body and moving and then I realized you, you limit yourself with your mind and you, know, you get to often what you believe and then I did a master's in coaching psychology and then I realized you're not a head on a stick, it's body, brain, brain, body. So I totally get this. You know, it took me 15, 20 years of evolution and studying and working with thousands of people. Why is Germany different though? I, I guess I should know because I'm working in psychosomatic medicine, but honestly, I, I don't know where in, in history Germany took a different track on psychosomatic medicine. So I can't really give you a good answer to that right now. I think I, I would look it up. So I, Harald Gündel, my, my boss, would know very well. Um, he's a psychosomatic medicine person. Yeah, but me as a trained social scientist, you know, I had different steps. I worked in medical psychology in in public health. And my final station now is uh, right now is psychosomatic medicine. So I'm, I'm coming from the outer world to that. So I well, I'll ask, really you, I'll ask you a question that you both have got a lot of heavy artillery on, but please say hello to Harold. Uh, when you were out here, when we first met, and Dr. Tom said, you've got to meet my good buddies from Germany. Uh, we met Harold and we had lunch. And I think my dog, Toby, either licked your feet or sat on your feet. I can't quite remember, but he was very affectionate <laughs> towards you. <laughs> so let's move to heart rate variability. 
There's so much we could talk about heart rate variability. So it's a high-level frame. Look, what, what is it, first of all? How do you measure it? And how do you use it to enhance performance or well-being? I think there's a simple explanation for that, Mark, isn't there, in that our heart rate is not static. You know, our, the, the, the time between each heartbeat it, when you measure it is not identical. And so, if you know, if listeners sit and they measure their pulse for the next minute and then they wait five minutes or even two minutes and measure it again, it, it'd be amazing if it was identical, you know. So so our, our heart rate, Mark's spoken about this the whole way through this talk about how dynamic the heart rate is and how responsive it is to inputs, either internal inputs within the body or external inputs through our senses. Um, so it's quite responsive. And it can respond, Mark, very, very quickly, can't it? So it can respond in milli- milliseconds. So when we talk about heart rate variability, we're talking about that ability of the heart to respond very quickly to the inputs to it. Yeah. And when we talk about somebody having high heart rate variability, it means that the heart is responding really, really quick. There's a lot of variability in between each beat. And that's from, I can speak from a cardiology perspective, and Mark will add to this, but from a cardiology perspective, somebody who's got good variability or almost plasticity, or, you know, if you think of it that way, that's actually a healthier heart. It's usually a younger heart and it's a healthier heart. Whereas somebody whose heart rate is becoming a bit more static in between the beats, it's going to be the, at the most static or the less variability in the seconds before you die from this world. In other words, that the variability gets lost as we get older and we get closer to passing away. And so we now know, Mark, don't we? We now know what the, how to measure that. And we measure it through the breeding cycle. And, you know, it's quite straightforward to measure. But we also know that a healthy heart is one that's highly variable second to second. Is that how you would explain it to your clients, Mark? Because that's certainly how I explain it to a lot of my clients. Absolutely. So there are just a few conditions uh, where variability is there and um, it's a medical uh, threatening condition. Usually a healthy heart is a variable heart. So each beat should be timed by your brain exactly to uh, match the environmental demands, basically. So if, if you put it that way, your, your brain is backseat driving your heart rate, more or less, you know. And the, the interesting thing about that is that uh, we presume that what we see in brain-heart connectivity and interaction there that we can measure at the brain is something that tells us something how much the brain is interfering with all the other end organs, you know, and steering the end organs to their function. Um, so people with lower heart rate mobility are more likely to suffer from type 2 diabetes or metabolic syndrome, um, have usually more weight gain. So the question is, what comes first? You know, does the uh, heart rate variability change and then you gain weight more or less? Or is it the other way around? We don't know because um, in the end, I think it's a process, you know, it's it's a daily process or a minute-wise process that is shaped and uh, so we are in feedback loops that slowly take your body to different uh, set points. And one of the set points might be type 2 diabetes and other set points might be metabolic syndrome or, or other uh, metabolic diseases. So, And you're able to move these set points by investing some energy like you do uh, with your executives um, and by training them, doing sport. But you could also do breath work or, um, yeah, it's it's a good good way to get your heart rate mobility 
to shape your or uh, change your heart rate availability and to get your body into different functional states, more or less. So what, what I hear you saying there, Mark, is that the heart rate variability is actually a measurement of the recovery system. And that the, the higher your heart rate variability is, the more what we call vagal tone or the more parasympathetic mm-hmm. activity we have. And that that's a good thing. I mean, I know it's a, yeah, good, thing a good thing. For, I know it's a good thing for my stress and heart studies, but it's actually a good thing for longevity. But from the work you're doing, it's a really good thing for your emotional state as well. Yes, it's uh, so the 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 brain network uh, that connects all the environmental demands and and what you have experienced, your memories and your predictions to the future, they are also involved on how you should respond emotionally to your environment. So the socio-emotional brain, more or less, or social-emotional responses you do, and they are closely um, connected to how the heart rate and the body is also prepared. And this absolutely makes sense in situations of fear and anger. Your face expression is different and your respondence to other people is different than in situations where you feel love or where you feel safe. So it makes sense that they are both somehow connected. I'm going to sound the buzzer before I ask this next question. So Wiz, I'm buzzing myself. Never thought that had happened. We can measure HRV by a wearable device. I I wear a Garmin. A lot of our clients have Whoop, the Aura rings. There's a whole bunch of devices. Tom knows where I'm going here. I'm going to put a time limit on this for three minutes because I really want to get into breath work and the other great processes you're doing as well. But talk to me about some of the complications on the, the measurement that people are getting now in these wearable devices around HRV. I'm not completely denying uh, and saying that you could, you know, with an Apple Watch measure good heart rate variability, but you need some stable conditions to get good values. Otherwise, it's uh, you don't really know what you're measuring because there's so many influences to to HRV that you measure. So I prefer measuring it with an ECG. So we have a clear signal, especially in, in our patients. They usually are a little bit older. They have other conditions that... Um, can disturb the signal. So what we really want to measure, uh, what I really want to measure is the raw ECG, ECG signal, get rid of all the artifacts, and then, you know, measure my RR intervals and calculate the variability myself. I mean, in the end, not everyone can, you know, afford or buy an ECG recorder and do all the techniques. So I understand that you need uh, to have some uh, like easy accessible monitors that can uh, give you some ideas and information. And, and they usually work very well in younger adults and also in, in healthy adults with the um, measurement of heart rate variability. So it, it's it's worse. I was, last uh, semester, I was teaching a seminar about um, how to collect health information with uh, wearable devices. So, um, you know, we need that. We need that focus um, because they are all around us and people are using it to guide their health behavior. Um, so we should make use of it. But uh, from a clinical perspective, I would say, well, these are consumer end products and they can help you detect something. But then you need to switch gears and get a um, professional device or professional 
information there and um, a professional who can help you to interpret your HRV values. I can see Tom nodding as well, but I'm going to play the devil's advocate. Sure, Dr. Mark. Sure, Dr. Tom. <laughs> this sounds nice. Have you seen my diary, guys? I have got a sea of back-to-back meetings. I've got kids eating at the table. I've got everything happening. I can't get into a lab, so I will use my watch. So, Tom, we, we see this all the time. And I actually – do you know we were in a workshop recently and I worded somebody up? I don't think I've told you this. I actually got one of the ladies to ask you, what should my HRV be? Because, <laughs> you know, we, we, we know with the heart rate – and, Mark, you said this on the chart we're going to put up – that you look at your age and a corresponding heart rate. But, Tom, uh, why, why do your shackles go up when I plant questions in an audience when someone says, what should my HRV be? I know because it's the question and the question is because there's probably about 50 different HRV variables that you can measure in anybody, you know, with, even with basic devices. So, uh, and I, I struggle with this with a lot of the companies, a lot of the sort of commercial products that are, your HRV is 50 and they give you some clap signals on it, but I actually don't know what variable they're talking about. So I think, I think there's a couple of layers to this. I think you know, the, the work that Mark and I do in clinical research and laboratory and clinical research, we're, we're looking for 99.99% accuracy, yeah? particularly if we're looking at making clinical decisions based on any variable, then 80% accuracy is not going to be good enough. You know, nobody out here, nobody listening here wants their, their general practitioner prescribing drugs on research that's 80% accurate. Yeah, nobody's going to get in an airplane that's only 80, 80% reliable. Nobody's getting on it. And so we have to apply the same principles when it comes to clinical medicine in that we need to be, we need to have very high degrees of certainty. And we have statistical ways of determining a probability to, to try and get as close to certainty as we can. But if we step outside of that world and I want to know how well I've slept last night, or I want to know what's been my physiological recovery, what's been my vagal levels overnight, i.e. what's my heart rate variability levels um, overnight, then I think the wearables have utility. They may not be accurate, but they are reliably inaccurate. So as long as they have a degree of reliability, even if they're not 100% accurate, then my score of 50 today will mean something when it's 25 tomorrow provided the wearable was used in the same way. So I think they do have a they do have utility. The question that riles me when we do the workshops is my hey, HR- I'm just gonna just gonna get my pen. Yep. Go. My HRV <laughs> is 50 Tom. Dr. Tom is 50 good. Right. So the question yeah. here the question here is how do we define good? Right. And so if my, let's take one of the most common variable that's used in heart rate variability or MMSD. I won't bore everybody with how it's calculated, but it is- Root very- mean square sum deviation. You've drilled that into me. Uh, yes, yes. Can, can, I, can I get another buzzer on that, Wizard? Thank you very much. Yeah, that's why I didn't go there. <laughs> no! But we do. So we have know, two in a podcast now. <laughs> we do. We do. We'll have three in a minute. But we do know that that variable correlates very, very strongly with the level of vagal or parasympathetic activity in the body. So it's one that one that there's a le- there's a lot of debate about the other ones, but there's less debate about that. Right. I'm more interested not in what your level is, but what's happening to it over time. Yeah. So if you are on fit. Uh, you don't have good health behaviors, then, and I'm working with you closely, I can use that to track 
how well you know you, how well you're progressing with heart rate with your metabolic measures with your heart rate variability i can look and see how your cardiorespiratory fitness is impacting it and it's useful measure right but i cannot what i like to really use it is to work out where am i under more stress load in the day and am i recovering at night so comparing daytime to nighttime if your level is 20 in the day and it's 60 at night that actually means a lot more to me than somebody saying my level 60 and it's 61 at night that person who's 60 and 61 at night he's not recovering at nighttime in a way they should be the person who's 20 in the day may be like you andrew talked about earlier you're going from you're busy and you're kids and you're doing your exercise and what have you so you're not getting a recovery in the day but if you're doubling or even increasing your heart rate variability by 30 percent at night then i know you're actually getting the recovery that you need so i think it's not about the number bark is it it's actually about the response over time and we expect your heart rate variability to go up to go up when you're asleep and we expect it to go down when you're exercising. That's normal physiology. So as Mark said, the number only means something when you know what state you're in and you know what you're doing. Other than that, you're looking at response over time. And, and that's something very, very important that you're addressing is um, you need to know the context and you need to, need to know the change in the reactivity over time. I mean, there, there are companies out there selling you a, a health report with a five-minute resting measure, and then they say, compared to your same age and sex competitors, you're, you're in, a good, in a green zone or in a red zone. I mean, that doesn't really mean something because you need to see the change over time. And this is the reason why um, in our patients, we not only measure the uh, resting five-minute interval, if I can get hands on it, I want to measure the 24-hour ECG recording and get their diary information. What did they do over the time, over the day? When did they went to sleep? And suddenly you realize you have people who are in the clinic for stressful, uh, work-related stress symptoms somehow, and um, they have a higher heart rate variability during the day compared to the night. So at night, you know, if you you know the the fire of life, the spectrogram with all the you know red, yellow red. Um, yeah, things there over day, I, we can put it on uh, as a picture. Um, we have people there who are basically uh, worn out at night uh, from their parasympathetic system. That The period where they should have higher parasympathetic activity, they actually have lower. So they, they burn for their job, but they don't burn during night, uh, in, in speaking of this flame uh, picture there. So that's that's an alarming signal, but they're still functional. They can go to work. They can, you know, they don't feel well, but they can do all their, their stuff they need to do. But this is like an early prevention stage where, where general practitioners should say, listen, or a coach should say, listen, you, sh you need to do something. Otherwise, you won't uh, be able to work this way in five years down the road. And I mean, in your burnout, uh, burnout podcast, you say predictions are very, uh, you, you're careful with predictions for the near future to, to your clients. This is also something, you know, it, it's a very rare picture. You see someone having low heart rate variability during sleeping time. But if you see that, it's something, you know, you should act on and you shouldn't wait until something happened um, that brings you into the hospital. So it, there's valuable information. Uh, Mark, Mark, thank you. Thank you for saying that because... Andrew and I have these conversations all the time with our clients, don't we, Andrew? We, we, you know, we, we see. We oh, they're see so lot. annoying. Oh, she's not doing anything I ask her to. Oh, he told, 
the oh that no the other one sorry quick going <laughs> to I, I our said, clients listening I, I said I'm clients, just I said I'm clients not partner I'm just <laughs> throwing it in to see whether they're, whether they're actually paying attention no we we do we have we have that discussion all the time so we 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 measure we do 48 hour heart rate variability monitoring and then with the diary like you do in your clinic we we look at their what what they're doing at the time and that puts the context to it it can be very hard in prevention mark can't it, to be able to say now look this is what i'm seeing here and the consequences of this are x y and z but your experience in the clinic and the work you do in the clinic when i was over there in july i mean i was sharing this with andrea just the the the, the level of work you do around manipulating hrv to increase well-being, to increase mental state, to increase performance and stuff. I, I think listeners would be fascinated what you do because I think it goes well beyond anything I've seen anywhere else. And you know I'm specifically thinking about breathing because I'm, I'm I can't stop telling people how effectively you use breathing. Can't stop telling. We have a meeting on a Monday morning, Mark. It's a chicken at 9 a.m. And we look back on the previous week, a little bit of gratitude, you know, what's happening, win of the week, and then we bring the attentive focus into this week. And when Dr. Tom got back from his visit with you recently, he said, can I have a little bit of time? And Angela looked at each other and thought, yeah, this is going to be a good one. And Tom was just effusive on what you're doing with breath work because you weren't sceptical, Dr. Tom, on breath work, but some of the practices and some of the protocols that maybe I introduced you to over the years – you were a little bit, where is the evidence? And I'd say, oh, there's no evidence. I've, there's probably some, but it feels good, so do it. So, Mark, we've always had this interesting dance, Dr. Tom and I, when we first met, especially. I'm out here, perhaps you might say a little bit loose, a bit creative, and Dr. Tom has been very scientific. Tom said something two weeks ago. I said, oh, my God, did you hear what you said? He said, yes, I'm sounding like you. And I'd said something recently sounding scientific, and he picked me up. So we've got this nice dance right now, yeah? Mm-hmm. But Tom was just saying on the breath work, because we do breath work in a lot of our programs, and you might teach someone how to down-regulate diaphragmatic breathing in three minutes. And even a lot of our executive clients go, three minutes? Oh, gosh, that's a long time. (laughs) The Mm -hmm. depth that you go to in both the training and the duration was fascinating. So we let Tom have another 15 or 20 minutes, and he actually told us about the work you're doing. It's fascinating. And that, that actually led to why we're here today, because I said at the end, I actually rang Tom and said, mate, we've got to get Dr. Mark on and talk about this, because I don't know, Tom doesn't know, haven't heard of anyone in the world doing this. So enough build up. I'll zip it. Tell us what you're doing. Breathing is uh, one of the ways to uh, basically hack your autonomic nervous system. There are hardly any other way to voluntarily change bodily function okay tom we, we don't use the word hack <laughs> oh okay <laughs> i'm just kidding you mark i'm just kidding <laughs> i was trying to wind andrew up there <laughs> we okay. often no, no, go for, go for it again go for it again i'm just no i'm just kidding you by the way i don't know if you want to leave that in andrew yeah but, of course we'll leave but, it. Uh, Keep but, rolling. Uh, Hack, hack, we always have a bit of fun about the word hack. And I know what you guys do is not a hack. It is absolutely scientific therapy. Well, yeah. So, uh, and we know that breathing has bodily effects, physiological effects. I mean, there's this traditional um, Chinese medicine. And in India, they have uh, thousands of years ago already um, books and, and, and paper rolls about breathing techniques and how to monitor the pulse and the heart rate and also the breath work. So, it's not new knowledge, it's 
old knowledge that we now put into um, like uh, clinical practice in a Western, uh, you know, focus. So usually it, it should be more holistic what we are doing. Um, I'm sitting down with with participants and say, well, um, so your instruction is two times daily. You should took a slow paced breathing app and breathe for about 10 minutes twice a day. So that's it. It's a very Western thing. So they sit down, look at the screen and start breathing, uh, I don't know, in the breath ball app or something, you know, see it. But it, it should be more holistic. Usually I should say, well, you know, sit down, relax, get into a good mood and then start your breath work. But this is not really working. This is not appealing to our clients right now because they can't really, you know, use that for that. They need instructions. They need a white coat person telling them and um, give them instructions what they should do. Uh, and then it works. But if um, I go there and say, hey, you know, I'm a, uh, I don't know, I'm a social scientist guy. And here's some ideas about how to improve your physiology by breathing. I, they basically would run away. Um, so they, they don't believe you. So it, it needs to be framed in this Western idea of here's a medicine i'm i'm as a doctor standing here and assure you that this will work and then they believe that that it's working and they start trying it and once once i start practicing a large amount of people really like stick to it during the pandemic in the second wave in germany the 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 wards were like overflowing with COVID patients and my colleague Elizabeth Ballin, she had to go to to work from uh, psychosomatic medicine into the uh, internal medicine wards and work there because they, you know, borrowed people uh, in there. And um, then we said, well, if if you're going to internal medicine, you go to directly to an infectious ward, and we do a study. And what can we do to increase vagal activity? Um, well, you could do a uh, you could use an electrical vagus stimulator. Um, that's not a way because we didn't have any personnel, we didn't have any resources, and and it's a clinical trial that's very expensive then. But you could do breath work, and with breathing, you can also manipulate your immune system. So the primary aim of this trial was to lower your IL six, so interleukin six, um, which is a pro-inflammatory cytokine, and that's you have probably the, the audience have heard about it uh, as a cytokine storm that happens to COVID patients. The primary aim was to prevent these cytokine storms. So lower your uh, increase heart rate variability, uh, increase vagal tone, and by that lower your IL-6. And it really did work well. So the patients had to breathe three times uh, 20 minutes per day. Um, they were fearing for their life. They were in isolated rooms, had barely any social contact, and they heard the alarm sounding around them. And, you know, sometimes people just disappear or so it was like, you know, it's it's a very um, frightening situation for you. You know, you're in hospital for a life threatening disease. And so you would do absolutely everything uh, um, to, you know, increase your chances to survive. And so this is the reason why we were able to put them into 60 minutes per day. And we could see that at, that the effect kicks in about 40 to 45 minutes practicing per day to lower your IL-6 in the next morning. So your systemic level of inflammation decreases in that. And that's that's really fascinating work. But after the study, they didn't continue to work with that because it's not something you can prescribe. You can, you know, recommend to your patients do breath work, but it's not something you can sell and prescribe and say, well, I'm getting my DRGs for uh, breath work. So I think this is one of the reasons why it's not going to be picked up. And then imagine... Uh, I came there to the infectious ward and said, hi, I'm a social scientist from psychosomatic medicine. And here's an idea how you lower your IL-6. And they are like the internal medicine guy standing there and saying, well, what do you know about our work? And so 
I was happy that my colleague uh, combined me because um, she was a, uh, she's a doctor, Matt, and um, she I think she was the convincing part of it. And otherwise, we wouldn't have been able to uh, really do treatment with breathing at the infectious wards in so such a just, time just where rewind a little yeah. bit. Forty to forty-five minutes. That's that's the magic number. So, Tom, I'm just what we found. What you found. I'm wondering how could we get our clients, Tom, a high end, especially exec clients, some of the founders and big movers that we work with, to get 45 minutes of breathing. Yeah, it's a really good question. And and Mark, what you're highlighting there is a couple of things. And I'll come back to you. I'll answer your question, Andrew. Is that that you do need to do, but when you're breathing, and particularly when you get your breaths around six breaths per minute, you get this coherence between the heart, the lungs, and the brain. And when you get that breathing there, particularly when you're exhaling, you're increasing the vagal activity in the brain. So you're opening the, the brain up. And when we measure heart rate variability, your heart rate variability goes up. So we, we know that the higher, the higher the variability, the less inflammation in the body. So what you're doing there is you're using breathing to regulate the immune system and it's almost an anti-inflammatory, almost an anti-inflammatory effect, or certainly an inflammatory prohibitive yeah. effect. It's it's called a culinary anti-inflammatory pathway. So there's there's like evidence in mammals for uh, across species that it's uh, an effective way to downregulate systemic inflammation. Absolutely. And what I want listeners from this podcast to walk away going is that when your heart rate variability is low because of your behaviors, it's actually pro-inflammatory. You're actually creating a state of inflammation in the body, which ha- you know can over time uh, lead to not such great things. What you had there was a, a captured audience trapped in a room in a life-threatening condition. And my experience of working in ICU for over 30 years is that people will do whatever they need to do to survive. Yeah. Andrew's question is, how can we translate that to our executives? Now, when I do physiology coaching with our executives, I struggle. There's one we're working with at the moment, Andrew, where I'm trying to persuade him to do three minutes a day. Yeah. And, yeah, once again, there's two elements to that. One, he has to believe it's going to do something. Well, you've just given some evidence about what it can do. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the second, second thing is he has to find the time to do it. Well, and there's the oxymoron, isn't it? Because if he actually found the time to do it, he would have more time for other capacity for other things. So, so I think, I think you have to, people have to be motivated to do it. But what absolutely blows me away is that the duration, the longer you do it, the greater your effect you get in almost every physiological reaction in the body. So back to you, how do we do it, Andrew? You have to be motivated to do it. Now, I religiously do 10 to 12 minutes nearly every night. Yeah. And for me, it's a trigger to go to sleep. It's, uh, I do use a device doing it. I use a, a, a neurofeedback design device that measures brain waves, gives me feedback. That satisfies the scientist in me. That satisfies a lot of our clients as well, Andrew, mm. because mm. when they wear this device, it becomes a trigger to do it. But it when also they gives get them their some feedback. data points. Yeah. Yeah. Data points. KPIs yeah. and metrics. And an aforementioned client whose name we won't mention, but I did catch up with him for a walking, talking, coaching meeting, and I'll make sure he gets a copy of this and you can listen to this very part we're talking about you. I actually said to him, if you can't do three minutes a day and actually do this, we're going to sack you from our program. I pulled, pulled on the big pants. You know, sometimes, Mark, with your clients, you've got to say, well, here's what we'd like you to do. Just do it. 
You know, if you do it for three or four weeks, I actually said to him, if you do it for three or four weeks and it doesn't make any benefit at all, I will run down a very busy area in Sydney. I won't say where because it'll give away where he works. I said on a Friday afternoon naked. That's how confident I am. And he looked at me and said, I'm going to start doing it. <laughs> yeah, scared. and I think, I think, you know, the point you're making there and, and when with Mark, with his study and with his clients, he has a captured audience and you have a duration and you have a motivation to do this. So I think, you know, the duration, the longer you do it, obviously, the more effect you get with it. But you have to do the reps and sets. I, I, I liken breathing work, Mark, to doing exercise. You know, that, that if you exercise regularly, then you get the long-term effect and breeding the same. And so with a lot of clients I work with, and I'd be interested in your opinion on this, I tell them I want 56 days straight. straight. I want to do it for 56 days. And I base that on the fact that if you want to become nocturnal, it takes you have to be up for 56 nights before your physiology adapts. So I sort mm-hmm. of use that, I use that sort of 56 day thing to say if you can do do something consistently for 56 days, you will you will start to get the massive benefit. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that from your experience, because often people will do three minutes. Oh, I didn't do anything, Dr. Tom. Well, it didn't do anything that day, but did you yeah. do it the next day and the next day and the next day? Yeah. So I think the uh, the long lasting effect will will also come from you know daily practice, uh, and this is the convincing them and, and you know finding a feasible way to tell them uh, also our patients this is something you should do and continue not only for two weeks but for like three months or or your lifetime. Um, this is a very very hard thing. You know you have to find the the individual point uh, or the teachable moment with that person where you convince him or her to do that in the end, you know, the, the, the trigger point. And I mean, the, the, we have recommendations to do, to be physically active, you know, the WHO has that. And I mean, who is doing it in the end, you know, maybe a third of the population and the other two thirds are saying, yes, I know about that, but I don't care. You know, it, it doesn't you know move me. So this is something similar. We, we, we can now say, well, everyone should breathe the right way or do slow paced breathing two times a day for 10 minutes. But um, there are some adherent people do that, but others, you know, you, you haven't, you ha- don't have convinced them to do that right now. And I mean, a life-threatening disease is a good motivator, definitely. But um, yeah, it's not not the case with uh, usually the people that we ha- um, have in the clinic. So we have to find other moments. Are you planning an upcoming conference or company offsite? For the past 15 years, I've averaged speaking at over 50 events each year, and I still love presenting at conferences as much as I did when I first started. To explore the different presentations I offer on a range of topics and themes, including physical and psychological well-being, becoming burnout-proof, connection and belonging, that's a new area I'm, I'm really enjoying presenting on neuroscience and behavior change, mental skills and leadership and culture. Or if you'd like to understand our fully integrated conference experience with pre-event diagnostics, activities throughout the agenda, including a morning wake up, energy breaks, team building activities and digital resources to embed learning. To find out more information and to download a brochure, go to andrewmay.com slash keynotes people listening to this going, yeah, look, I want to double down on this. Is that the dose? If you could get people to do 10 minutes by two, that's going to make a significant difference over time. Because we've spoken about a lot of the science. It's been awesome to go down rabbit holes and understanding the mechanism. But if we get really practical, two, 
Use breath work, especially to increase your heart rate variability. 10 minutes by two a day. Yeah, what we now try with uh, with our patients, so two times 10 minutes. And I, I hope that we will see effects after five weeks. I don't know yet. Um, I mean, this is a study that we start in October um, where we tell the patients that are on our waiting list, here's an intervention, do that. And what I'm hoping that we see is that they have higher vagal activity when they come to our clinic, so they will benefit more from the therapy they are getting there in the clinic. So like preparing the mind and preparing the vagal system basically for psychotherapy. Uh, this is the, the ground idea there. I, I can't tell you if two times 10 minutes is really the formula or if it's something different, you know, like 15 minutes or something. Mark, that that's in individuals on a waiting list for psychosomatic therapy. But what about, I mean, I, I what about in those where you're using it as a prevention? I mean, you do some amazing work with the German police, for instance. So, you know, you're using that more in a preventative mode with in in that cohort who are at risk of, of psychological. Yeah. 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 So, the, I mean, police officers, uh, the, the occupation of police officers um, or occupational field is very special in in a, in a way that they have very, very high demands, a high insecurity when they go out for duty. They never know what will happen the next minute or if they have to, you know, search a car or so this is like uh, they have a good training. On the other hand, you know, they have a mental and physical training. Um, so they are very, uh, from their physiological state, they are very um, good exercise. So this also has impact on emotion regulation and, you know, the, how vulnerable they might be for mental diseases. But on the other hand, the German police has the same as other police forces in the world. The, the issue that at a certain time point in age, the officers get more vulnerable to um, mental disease. I just put it the, the general term there. Uh, especially um, post-traumatic stress disorder-related diseases. So how to prevent that? It's not something that you prevent in that very specific moment. It's something that you prevent when you start being 25 or 30 and, you know, continue through the lifetime of your, um, your being in service. And one of the things that you could do is uh, not only the breath work, but also um, we do the consultation work. So we measure a 24-hour ECG with them. They get a diary, and then we um, a psychotherapist sits down with them for an hour and really tells them, look, at that time of the day, what happened there? You know, your physiology dropped, or at that time it was very high. So what is, you know, what was triggering that? So you get a very intimate moment with that uh, person and a very, very personalized information uh, that you can bring to him. So like you create teachable moments with this person um, to convince him to change maybe small things and also to point out resources that they have. So like a good talk with a partner or, um, you know, after being on a, in the sauna or um, having um, done physiology uh, sports, you can pick out these certain times. And so they feel very, they get very individualized information about themselves. And they only change small things. Like I don't want to fall asleep on the couch in the evening. This was one of the, the things that my client took out. This is nothing, you know, it will never be a life-threatening thing if you fall asleep at the couch, but it's constantly disturbing your sleep patterns because the first REM and deep sleep phase 
is blunted because you fall asleep at the couch, you wake up after an hour, you know, your neck is aching, you go back to bed, you have trouble to fall back asleep. And so, you know, it's not much, but it's not very um, relaxing your sleep. And if you have that pattern over and over, over 20 years, you can change something in the long run. And this is something that we try to convince and um, they, we also recommend to some of them to do breath work, you know, to, to have um, uh, moments in the morning or in the evening to relax and to focus, to get up their duty. Um, but this is very like specialized or, or um, you know, in, in just a few page, uh, few um, people we do that for prevention because the police officers usually, they think they have everything under control. And when they enter the room, you also have the feeling like, oh, you know, they supervise everything. And so it's it's a very, they have very strong personalities. In Can I rewind a little bit? Yes. I've done this a few times today because you're talking about this and dun, 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 and I go, oh, yeah. and I want to hear you out. <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> if we go back, you were saying that there's critical points or what Dr. Tom and I say with our clients, there's inflection points. And if you can teach this work for police and other first responders, and I'd also throw into that a lot of the work that we're doing with defence, with Army, with Air Force and Navy, am I correct in hearing what you said? If you teach these skills at critical inflection points, that's going to make a big difference to that individual's ability to keep regulating stress as they get older. And if I jump to conclusions, will lead to less stress claims, mental health challenges, and a overall greater quality of life. Yes. So I, I believe, I strongly believe that this is uh, the case, that you can create uh, these moments where they take something away for your life. And I'm happy if, you know, behavior change is really hard. You know, if we ch- want to change our behavior, maybe, you know, we need a trigger point and say, well, on New Year's Eve, I, I stopped smoking or something. But after two weeks or five weeks, uh, you started smoking again because you fall into old habits. So behavior changes really a hard thing the older you get the more harder it is and so i'm really happy with people you know thinking about how they handle their their life situations it's not always stress but uh, you know their life situations and if they change a thing and you know be be mindful about what they are changing and why they are changing it can have a big impact on their future health but you had me at yes like when when i asked that question and i built it and i could see dr tom looking as well his eyes were going up and you said yes. Why then? The, the next natural question, Dr. Mark, is why aren't police departments, other first responders, defense forces around the world teaching this at those critical inflection points? Underscore, it's a totally biased question because it's aligned with some of the work we're doing. <laughs> but a serious question why aren't organizations around the world doing this? I think that that um, so the organizations with a strong hierarchy are very like have a very male dominated view on the world, and you know we are there's a German saying about that. I don't know how to translate it, but um, you know it's like uh, we, we don't we are not vulnerable, you know, to that. We we don't have any mental issues, and you know we are strong. Nothing can hold, hurt us, and so they keep feeding it into their insights. And there are just a few persons out there who are. Although they are in line in the hierarchy, they say, well, we need to do something different about that. And one of these persons is um, the uh, the commissioner or the, the head of the police here in Ulm, um, who decided, well, you know, I had some 
really bad experiences over the time. Uh, and I think it's not healthy how we handle that. And let's do some things different. And I mean, he's responsible for two and a half thousand police officers. So, uh, you know, it's like he can change something. And you need persons like that to say, well, I envision a police force that's a slightly different, you know, that pays attention to the mental health of my police officers. And uh, so this is how we basically got into the study because we proposed something and he said, well, I know that from my own experience and you're right, we want to change something. What I've, um, I, what I've loved about this interview is we started with the intellectual love affair that you both had on the heart. Then we spoke about <laughs> the heart and you know, the heart and, and the way it's so different to other organs and having its own personality and the way it works. Then we spoke about heart rate variability and that is a utility and how you can train that and how you can measure it. And I wired Dr. Tom up and he answered it really beautifully. And then we spoke about breath work and totally challenged the amount of breath work. And a lot of our clients, a lot of your clients go, I'm too busy, three minutes ago, can't I do it in like 30 seconds? And you know, you're looking at longer than that and the mechanism you're looking at in some of your research was around 40 to 45 minutes okay so it's all been science and some of our people listening to this might be going oh i love the science give me the data then then you saved all the stuff that as an entrepreneur i just go that is mind-blowing that you are now working with a police department or a division with two and a half thousand people and, and you were emphatic with all of your training, all of your experience to say at inflection points during your life, when you learn how to relax, when you learn how to get you know, greater vagal tone, heart rate variability, heart rate variability, breath work, that this is going to make a significant difference. I'm just dropping the mic. I'm out of here. Done. Episode over. <laughs> I mean, the, the question is, my, my comment on that is, what, why are, particularly in those services or high-stress occupations, why, why aren't people doing it when we know that higher heart rate variability gives you greater resilience to stress? It just seems, it just, you know, we in the same way we know that the effects of cardiorespiratory fitness have on us as humans. We we know, we know this. And I think it's just that difficulty of people believing it to do it. Uh, I'm amazed yeah. how you've overcome that um, in such a big service. Yeah, and, and I mean, the police force and the army is doing breath work. If you go to a rifle range, uh, the snipers do their breath work to lower their yeah. pulse and get a hit a target better. The, the so shoot, shoot in between. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah it's yeah. tactical breathing. They call it. They wouldn't say it's it's mindfulness breathing or you know like slow pace breathing. They just take term the terminology is tactical breathing, and that sounds well. I I use the term in the police force too, and and you know that's appealing to them. So it's about also language and marketing how you sell that. And or the the air force pilots, you know, there are certain ways to breathe that you can uh, increase your your blood pressure and you can sustain higher g forces. So that's fantastic. So you're using breathing in war or in in war situations, you know, to keep up your physiology. And why don't use it in the in in our everyday life? But this is not you know not really transported right now, and I'm not so convinced. I think- but. I think some I think some occupations do. I mean, if you watch a neurosurgeon or a cardiac surgeon at work, they their breathing rate will be so low. They will be so you know. So I think I think people trip into it, but actually using it preventatively really excites yeah. me. Really, really excites me. Um, knowing what we know about breath work, heart rate variability, and the link with inflammation, with longevity, with performance, with mental well being. I mean. As a society, we we really have to embrace this. 
There's an obvious question that neither of you have asked. And when I'm looking at your introductions, I'm just making sure I've got the right people. I've got Dr. Mark running laboratory for clinic experimental stress at the Department of Psychosomatic Medicine and Psychotherapy at this medical center in Orm. I've got Dr. Tom Buckley, Associate Professor of the Faculty of Medicine and Health at Sydney University. Gentlemen, where's the data? What, what is your studies showing? Gosh, you're saving this for the very end. Have you got results on this that you can share with us? Have you got results on this that you are publishing to show pre and post scores with with trial groups? We both approach this differently. So I have data showing what happens to heart rate and heart rate variability under particular stress states. So I have data that shows what how the stress negatively impacts and how that then makes you prone to onset of particular diseases or emotional states. Mark's coming out the other way because he's looking at the impact of therapy. So I'll hand over to Mark. I could bore you with data about what happens to heart rate variability under many different stress states. There's some data um, that we already have published on um, work like that, what we have talked about. Uh, we measured the client, uh, the, the, the patients coming to the clinic pre-post, HRV, 24-hour. And um, so I analyzed the data. And guess what? During the clinical stay, their symptoms improved, but not their heart rate variability. And this is what I said well, in the beginning. So there's maybe a way to improve also HRV uh, that we need to get into the clinical process so they also benefit from that. So there are other studies out there. They show small improvements. But in the end, if you think that the sort of patients that we have in our clinic in terms of how long they are suffering from their disease until they reach the medical center at the university level, they are year, we're talking about years and years and decades maybe sometimes. So why would you think that the physiology change within six to eight weeks therapy at the hospital when you have a time period of, say, 10 years in the beginning where you have reshaped and, re, uh, you know, put your physiology into different set point. Six weeks won't change too much in that. So in, in the beginning, I was disappointed. But then after thinking carefully about that, I thought with my colleague Katya, well, you know, that's that's it. Why would you expect so much change? They didn't do anything to improve their HOE. They just do, did something to improve their emotion regulation. So all, you know, peripheral things, but not nothing central. They didn't do any additional sport or breath work. And so this is something that I would love to change. And we start, change, start changing it by putting them on the waiting list uh, now in the study that um, we started in October, uh, um, where they brief to the breath work during their waiting time for their therapy to start. So what I hear, what, what I hear you saying, Mark, is that your therapy and breath work shifts their state. All that is aimed at increasing the heart rate variability, but and you should the state shifts first. And the physiology is much slower because it took years to degrade the physiology. So it probably takes a long period to actually enhance it again. But Andrew, we, we've seen in the analysis we did in our clients that when you increase VO2 max, increase the cardiorespiratory fitness, you get a proportional increase in their vagal tone. So that would feed in here because over a long period, you can shift the physiology. But over a short period, you shift the mental state. Is that what I'm hearing you say, Mark? Yes, yeah, this is absolutely. And I think back in 2019, when we met uh, just before COVID, when we were visiting you, this was one of the reasons, you know, to meet up and say, well, you, you're already doing the, the 
physical uh, and, and nutrition intervention with them, with your clients, can we transfer something of that knowledge to our patients? Because patients and executives are, you know, two different types of people uh, to say in the end, they have different needs, but maybe the technology and the ideas that you're doing, we could transfer to um, our patients. And some of that we did, but uh, since 2019, you know, the ideas were there to change therapy. And like I say, I call it pro-vagal therapy, but um, it's, it's, I always get this from the doctors, like, ah, it's, it's, it's a nice idea, but, you know, we can't put um, DRG on it. So if you can't be paid for it, we don't do it really. So that I think this is the, you know, the other side of the clinical process. Where do you see this going with the police force? So the, the group you're doing, the traction you're getting, are there discussions about making this a much bigger program? Yeah, yeah, it's it will be a statewide program now in Baden-Württemberg. Um, so this is really something. So my science heart and my practical heart are really, uh, I'm, I'm proud of it, of this project, because this is the first time where we designed an intervention in at the university and um, brought it to, to a company or to where it's really implemented into the health management program. So the psychosocial consultants in the police force are now um, taking courses at a different company. They get teach how to interpret HRV, how to do the measurements. So it's uh, it's independent of us now, independent of the university now. So it's really implemented there. And they are enrolling it next year to all the police headquarters in uh, Baden-Württemberg. And I mean, this is something, you know, yeah, it's it's rare that you can implement something and change a structure, especially in, in the police department. So really nice, uh, nice work, I have to admit. <laughs> I, I see you smile when you say that. You must be very proud. Look, at that. That's, that is massive to take what you've been doing in research in psychosomatic medicine, then to have a trial with the police yeah. department. So you, you had a very open-minded, I'd say, without giving away confidential details someone who had maybe had some challenges either in his life or around yep. his life as well who really could see the utility in this and then you rolled the program out you got great results and now it's going large scale well done i, I love hearing that because it's a beautiful dance between science and evidence-based research but you also mentioned in our discussion before it's the marketability the storytelling and making it stick so it's that dance between science and stickiness that you've obviously found the right the right balance absolutely and i had worked in companies uh, or with companies, you know, they were keen on measuring the health of the clients and get a health check basically for everyone. And then taking the numbers and the managers were interested in getting their bony uh, on, you know, my my department is more healthier than yours. So I get an increase in my bonus. That's the only thing that mattered. And it was like, you didn't do any change to to the health of your employees. I worked in a big automotive company where they uh, the, the health impact was that they put the salad in front on the uh, on the menu, so people would who who are undecided would grab a salad instead of you know other food. It's like that's not a health intervention to um, fight work stress, um, and they did all the assessments. But I was so frustrated that nothing came out of it. You know? Oh come on, Mark! It works. It's like when you give people a stress ball. That works, right? You know? Yeah, or have a yeah, massage, yeah. have a head, neck, and shoulder <laughs> massage once a year, or roll everyone in the call center through it. What are your stress levels like? Oh, they're so much better. Yeah, it, it doesn't change. Oh, so now we have we have had the ability to change the structure, you know, and to implement something. And I think this is, you know, it from your uh, companies, it's persons is the one thing, but changing structure and uh, changing the work environment is the other thing. And this is really the difficult part of it. 
Um, so also the behavior change of the executives uh, that you need to, uh, um, you know, they are influencing the, the work environment too. So, yeah. Well, you've inspired us. Uh, I love that there's the rigor nice. and the research and the data and you're going to have to clone yourself to get around to all the demand. For people who are listening to this who would like to connect with you, what's the best way for them to, to reach out or what's the best way for them to follow the wonderful work that you and your colleagues are doing? Uh, so by email, we can put that on the podcast. Uh, it's the easiest way to reach me. Or um, uh, if you want to read what I'm doing, um, I'm on ResearchGate. Uh, so there you see all the latest papers. And um, if you're interested in some data and collaboration on data, shoot me an email. I have more data than I can ever analyze and publish. So this is like the the pitfall of science, you know, you generate a massive amount of data and you're, you get a lot of results, but the science system is in a way that it doesn't uh, really, you know, allows you to sit down and, and write for half a year. So let's have a chat offline as well. I've got lots of ideas running through my head. I came to this discussion today wanting to really get deep into the mechanism and with the science of series, we want to go deep. We only had Homer a couple of times, Wiz come in so it was great for going through that <laughs> but the, the, the gold at the end how you've built this and what you're doing with the police force a couple of clients we're working with so I'm going to get to listen to this podcast and I think there could be some co-collaboration or some co-learning so let, let's have that chat I'll, I'll leave it at that but you've got me yeah. very excited with some potential Thanks. opportunities to get you back to the land down under again absolutely uh, Dr. Mark Dr. Tom Thank you both for your time. Thank you for the really nice blend between science and practicality in the dance and what started as a love affair around the heart has now led to programs where you're literally changing people's lives in large organisations around the world. So big shout out to both of you. Thank you for your time today and really looking forward to having that other conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us over. Today we are introducing a new segment to the podcast where we want to hear from you, the listener. The Performance Intelligence Podcast team and I regularly receive messages, or sometimes at conferences people come up to tell me their remarkable stories of how they've applied what they've learned from this podcast into all parts of their lives. These types of stories are exactly what drives the podcast and it's why we continue to have diverse conversations with such a broad range of guests. Today I'd like to introduce you to a long-time listener and a man that I met several years ago when working for a large Australian bank. Hugo Fonseca was what I call a renovator's dream. I'm sure you're happy for me to introduce you as a renovator's dream. So Hugo, rather yeah, than cool. telling your story, I'll hand over to you. It's lovely to have you here. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks. Uh, yeah, renovator's dream is probably a, a good way to uh, to put it. Yeah, this this goes back about fifteen years or so ago when I was amazingly impacted by uh, by what what you presented on at the time. Uh, I think it was two thousand eight, uh, which would have been about a year after the, the iPhone came out. I still remember the discussions you had because uh, everyone was just always on notifications, pings, lights on. At the time, everyone had a BlackBerry. I had one as well, and you asked us all to, to put the BlackBerry in, in the, the center of the table facing down and uh, and we just stopped and watched everyone just shake uncontrollably because they no longer had access to uh, to, to the lights. Yeah, everyone, the everyone twitched. Now, for any young'uns watching this who are going, oh, 2007, I wasn't even born. Uh, <laughs> the BlackBerry was way before the iPhone and, and all the banking execs. You were at Bank West then. It was before it had been bought out by ComBank. 
And it was the cool kids had the blackberries, but I could just see the behaviour. And that was early in my days, Hugo, from sport entering the corporate yeah. world. And it was foreign to me just watching you all there, but just being totally on your mobile phones. I still remember to this day, it was hilarious for me as the outside guy looking at this ridiculous behaviour. And I called it out. And I think everyone was a little bit shocked at first. I, Who's this heretic? Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it caught my attention straight away. And I thought, no, oh, this guy means business. He's, <laughs> he's just taught kind of made me aware of something that I hadn't paid attention to. But um, yeah, that's that's when the journey started. And at the time, I was uh, I was about 120 kilos, so quite overweight. Uh, and it, and I felt like there was never enough time in the day and never enough days in the week. I was just in a, in a, a rat race. The days were, were not long enough. I was taking work home because I was taking work home. I'd then have a, a couple of drinks every night. I would eat uh, unhealthy uh, food. So it was just a, a vicious cycle that got me um, to, to be that overweight and feeling so stressed. And that whole day that I think it was a full day at the time that we spent together completely changed my life in, in all aspects. But the the points and the the learnings that I took away from that, and I also then straight after that read your, your book at the time, Match Fit, uh, not Match Fit, sorry, um, Flip the Switch. Match Fit is a great book you have now just about planning your rests your your time to relax and to to recover planning your day planning your week planning your months your quarters your your years and and having those breaks locked in i guess to make sure that they they happen uh, and at the time i was thinking that's impossible i don't have time for breaks i don't have time for holidays how am i going to plan them in I, I never even get what i need to do done now but it, it completely turned it around so from then on i went on to to lose 35 kilos 35. We went for a walk and talk about a month ago. We'd reconnected about doing some work there at NBN. And when you said that to me, I did a double take. 35, because looking at you now, a lot of people will hear this on audio, but for people who are watching the YouTube, you are, you know, you're fit, you're buffed, you're a healthy, good-looking specimen. 35 kilos. That's a lot of weight. And before you tell me the differences, how you feel, how you think, how you perform, shout out to Mark Chopper-Reed. I'll make sure that Mark gets a copy of this because if it wasn't for him, we would not have met. He's a good man, Reedy. Yeah, no, absolutely. I owe a lot to uh, to that day, to be honest. Yeah, lost the 35 kilos. Did that over about six, nine months. But it, 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 there was no secret formula to it. It was literally because I put all those structures in place and – and frameworks to make sure that I was more organized and, and more in control of, of what I did when I did it, I actually got a lot more done, including exercise, obviously, and resting properly, which then led to me eating better, sleeping better, drinking less, etc. And the, the, the weight just, just fell off. And that now 15 years later, still here, still uh, st and I haven't put it back on and, and always in control and on top of everything. And I still remember a lot of the the learnings that, that I took from that day and I pass it on to my teams, to everyone that, I, that I've worked with because they realize and they notice how organized in their eyes I, I seem to be. And that's just because I put in the, the, the effort beforehand and I pre-plan so that you know, things, things don't always go to plan. But if you don't have a plan, then you'll get controlled by circumstances and, and by you know, your surroundings and your environment and you won't get the right things done at the right time. So, yeah. I 
love hearing messages like this, Hugo, and that's why we wanted to bring you on to be the first person in our Spotlight series on what people have learned from the podcast or what they've learned from doing our program. So as you say that, you light up, you smile. When we went for that walk, you just, you're effusive about the changes. You're a father, you're connected with your kids. I just love hearing the cascade effect. And, and I'm going to take the spotlight off me and put it onto you because I can say this, but you've actually got to do the work. Was it hard to make that shift or did it just something on that day clicked? To be honest, it wasn't wasn't hard at all. Yeah, something just just clicked. It's easy to to just get lost in the the business of, of the day to day, and that day just made me take a step back and reflect and and become more self aware of what I was doing and how I was doing it, uh, and the, the little details, including what we spoke about with the, the blackberries and whatnot, the switching off of notifications, so I'm not constantly interrupted by by everything. And to this this was 15 years ago, and I still work with. Uh, several. I, I see it all the time, colleagues, etc., that still have all the beeps and vibrations and, and the, all the different notifications constantly interrupting what they're trying to do. I remember you talking a lot back then and you still talk about it in, in terms of multitasking or, or switch tasking because we, we can't really multitask. We're just constantly switching from one to another. I remember some of the stats that you mentioned at, that, at the time and I, I still to this day sort of pass them on to everyone else and it's a bit of a shock to them as well, but that's that's the shock that I had, um, particularly around interruptions where, don't quote me on it, but it was 20-something minutes that it took for someone to get back to the same level of focus and concentration uh, after yes, having been We're going to have to get this going to come and run workshops. We had to launch a couple of big programs with large organizations, and we're thinking, how do we get some other trainers? Hugo, you might be writing yourself into a contract. It's about 24 minutes yeah, when you're in deep work and you're focused high-end tasks. You can't multitask at a high-end. Low task, low end like diary management, talking to someone, there's argument that you can toggle a few tasks. But when you're high end, really focusing, you can only do one thing and do it properly, 24 minutes. Yeah, there you go. That, that was one that stuck with me straight away because I thought, well, that's unbelievable. <laughs> How much time am I wasting then uh, by having all those notifications on? So yeah, no, it's 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 been uh, a very rewarding journey and, and I owe a lot to, to that day and then to uh, everything else that you've done since then. The books, the podcasts that I, I listen to religiously as soon as, pretty much as soon as they come out when I go out for, for my walks and, and, uh, and my exercise when I listen to them. I, I love the, the bite-sized bits as well uh, when I have less time. It's just, oh, here's a, here's a topic that interests me. Let me just listen to that, that quick bite-sized one. So, um, yeah, and still still, still going, still learning uh, and, and still taking advantage of all the great information and the great guest speakers that you get on, on your podcast. Um, just recently purchased a, uh, an ice bath. Uh, I'm on to the intermittent fasting. Uh, I've got my, my morning routine all, all set up so that I wake up you know, in the right way and, and set myself up for, for the day uh, in the right way. And, and there's still other things that I haven't tried yet, but, uh, but that I'm in the process of because I've, uh, I've seen that what you share works and I've applied it for the last 15 years. So you never stop learning. Well, I, I get really excited. Wizard, we get really excited when people say that they listen to the podcast, not that we think we're producing a crap podcast. We, we just, <laughs> we've been overwhelmed seeing the growth, especially the last five or six months. It's, just, it's hockey stick. More and more people, thousands of people are listening to our podcast and we love that. We love the way it's growing. We love getting the feedback from you. I will pass on the ice bath. Was that from Dino Gladstone or was it from listening to Dr. Tom Buckley? Which episode? A bit of both. Uh, and I did feel a bit like 
Dr. Tom Buckley, uh, as you said, that he needs to, uh, I guess, toughen up a bit. Uh, he struggles with your <laughs> I felt a bit like that when I, I tried the first one, but I had your uh, your words in, in my mind and, and I thought, no, no, I need to toughen up. I'll get used to it. Oh, HTF use the acronym we use. I'll pass this on to Dr. Tom Buckley. <laughs> that the first of our listeners who's giving us information, feedback on the podcast and the changes, has told Dr. Tom Buckley, who's a regular on the podcast, to HTFU. Love that. Hugo, for other people who are listening to this going, oh, it's all right for Hugo, but yeah. And but is normally a whole litany of reasons on why I can't do it. What would you say to somebody listening to this who's on that precipice of change? We call it the seesaw of ambivalence. You're stacking all the positive reasons why you should change, and then there's all the negative reasons, the buts. What would you say to that person to try and help them move forward? Look, for me, I, I think I, I was the same. Uh, I can't, can't afford to, to, to change. I don't have time to change, et cetera. Looking back now, I, I can't afford not to have changed. I couldn't afford not to have changed. It's, it's thinking about, do you want to be in, in that same situation, that same stressful, eventful day when you get to the end of the day and you were busy all day, you think back and you can't even recollect what it was that you were busy with, eating unhealthy, not sleeping well, not resting properly. It's just a vicious cycle. So. Can you afford to, to not change? Do you want that for another five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? Uh, or do you want to make that, that change that is, uh, is going to make a difference? Because it's made a difference not just for myself, but being healthier, fitter, brought more energy, uh, improved my relationships, improved everything, my family life. So it's um, the, the cost of not doing anything or, or not trying these, these um, tested and, and tried measures is much bigger than, than uh, not not trying it out so give it a go and, and you start realizing that it's not that hard do you just pulled on a big emotional conduit or a big lever then for anyone who's listening to hugo and if you are a parent or have children in your extended family that's a massive one isn't it mate when you look at the, the research fit healthy parents have fit healthy kids fact overweight unfit parents have overweight unfit kids fact and, and i know you've got some gorgeous children how has this? How have how have your changes impacted the relationship with your kids, and and how has it impacted the role modelling on your kids' fitness and your kids' health? Oh, it's hugely impacted them. If I think back, well, two things: one, in terms of what they eat, uh, what they love eating. I mean, you ask. So I've got a, a nine and six year old. You ask both of them uh, what their favourite foods are, and and the top five are all different vegetables. They ask for it before they ask for anything else. you got parents around the world now pausing, going, I need to <laughs> talk to this guy. We might do a separate episode, how to get your kids to eat veggies with Hugo. That's massive to have your kids <laughs> doing that huge. They can't, they can't have enough. Carrots, broccoli, you, you name it. They've, they've tried it all. They love it all. They, they, if mum asks you know, what, what they'd like to eat, that, that they're the first five, if not ten, that they, they'll come up with that they ask her to, um, to make for them or to prepare for them. So... Absolutely. And then from a physical uh, point of view, I mean, if I was, this was 15 years ago that I was 120. Had I not changed, I probably would be even heavier now. But even if I was still at 120, there's no way I could be you know, running around with my kids playing. They love soccer, football with my Portuguese background. For me, that's, uh, <laughs> but let's call it soccer. They love it. And how would I be able to run around and, and kick the ball around with them and, and help train them and help see them grow and develop? It, it's those those special moments. Uh, and 
I, I used that a lot to to motivate me because I pictured what it'd look like if I hadn't lost all the weight and, and gotten all this extra energy, and probably just looked like you know, all of us lying down and not even sitting down, lying down on the couch, um, you know, watching TV or, or you know, playing video games, or whatever it may be, which can create some memories, but they're not the lasting ones and, and the legacy that what I do now with them leaves for them and then hopefully for their kids as well is um, it's something that's embedded in in their in their mindset and then it, it's what they know. They don't know any different and uh, and it's it's what they should know, really. And in the next Football World Cup, at time of recording, it's a Rugby Union World Cup, but football, you would say the real game. Uh, in Australia, we bastardise it and call it soccer. You'll be able to regulate your emotions and regulate your stress when you watch Portugal get right through to the pointy end and hopefully take a World Cup for you, because I know that's a huge goal for you as well. Like every Portuguese, or in fact, every friend I have globally who follows football, they all want their team to win. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, yeah. I'll be right there cheering for them. Right till the end. <laughs> You'll be there for years. We're going to get you to 100 plus with the health and all the tips we give on performance intelligence. Hey, Hugo, thanks for today. I've loved chatting to you. I've loved just seeing you light up on screen. People will hear it in your voice, but you can see it on camera as well. You're glowing. Yeah, no, no, thank you. Everything that I've shared today is is exactly how it happened. And, and uh, I owe a lot to yourself and, uh, and to everything that you've shared with me and, and to that first day when, uh, when we first met. So, yeah. Look, I'll take a little Pretty bit good. of kudos, but I'm going to push it back because we can give people the content, the info, but you've actually got to do the work. You've got to do the reps and sets. If anyone is listening to this and saying, hey, I've got a story I would also like to share about success, whether it's your weight management, your mindset, productivity, relationship, just trying some of the science-backed and sometimes what Dr. Tom says, the quirky things that I introduce people to, we'd love to hear from you as well. So reach out, let us know, and we'd love to have you on a future guest episode as well on Performance Intelligence Podcast. Hugo, catch you later. Thanks, Andrew.